the heart of Waterloo, London, the Colombo Fitness Centre and Gym offers great outdoor pitches and courts for tennis, basketball, netball and football. With monthly memberships starting from £25.95 for inclusive gym and class facilities, or a great value £17.95 for local residents who join, the Colombo Fitness Centre has something for everyone. Find out more at colombocentre.co.uk or telephone 0207 261 1658 to join the Colombo Fitness Centre and Gym in Waterloo. So that was February. Can you believe it, everybody? The month has gone by in a flash. And welcome to Two Guys on Fitness, the podcast for anybody who's interested in training, a fitness lifestyle, or eating well for a full and happy life. You're joining me and my good friend here, the personal trainer, Julian Bertherat, at the Colombo Centre and Gym in the heart of Waterloo, central London. Welcome to the podcast. We're glad you joined us. Every month, what we tend to do is to focus on health, exercise, diet, and everything fitness related. How are you, Julian? How is life treating you this uh, rather chilly day? Well, I'm fairly busy at the moment. Uh, the first couple of months of the year, very important business-wise. People want to start, begin a new routine. And uh, yeah, generally, um, I don't go away. I'm here. I'm not in holiday. I'm here the first three months, back to back, because yeah, it's important to be available for people. There's always someone asking for advice, and every year the same routine. You know, the first three months are gonna dictate how your years is gonna be. On my side, how my business is gonna be, and on people's routine in general, a lot is uh, happening the first few months of the year. Well, isn't that marvellous, everybody? Uh, That's Julian there in a bit of a bumptious kind of mood facing down the rest of the year. Now, anybody who listened to the podcast last month, uh, you wonderful, wonderful people, would be aware at the end that I did indeed promise that this month we would be looking at the subject of nutrition and, in fact, talking to a nutritionist about this topic. And that is exactly what we've done because this month we have spoken to a rather fantastic nutritionist called Sophie Medlin. Sophie is a consultant dietitian in London with expertise in gastrointestinal and colorectal health. And we took the opportunity to sit down with Sophie and talk about disordered eating, colorectal diseases and disorders. And when I say we, I actually mean Julian. So Julian, you had a chat and we're going to play the interview in a second with Sophie. So shall we take a listen to that conversation and what Sophie had to say about these uh, interesting topics? Yeah, I really enjoy talking to to Sophie. I learn a lot. So I hope you're going to enjoy the, the interview. Indeed. So let's see what Sophie has to say about these topics. And on the other side, we'll have a little chat about this interview. So hello, everyone. Today, uh, I'm having an interview with Sophie. She's a dietitian. So Sophie, tell us more about you, uh, your background. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, so I'm a registered dietitian. Dietitians are different to nutritionists and obviously lots of personal trainers have got some nutrition qualifications and may identify as nutritionists. But dietitians do a full degree in nutrition, so the science of nutrition, but then we go on to learn how to apply that to medicine. So we go into hospitals on placements and things like that and understand how to apply the science of nutrition to medical conditions to treat and manage and support people who live with medical nutrition issues. 
things like people who may need tube feeding. I work primarily with people who've got gut function problems. These are the sort of more medical side of things that dietitians get involved in, which is very much the territory of dietitians, whereas nutritionists and personal trainers, of course, are much more like trained and, and regulated to be able to work with healthy individuals to get healthier rather than those who live with medical conditions. How long it take uh, roughly to become a dietitian? Yeah, great question. So um, our undergraduate degree is three or four years. You can do it as a postgraduate and that would be an additional two years to your undergraduate degree. So uh, mainly, if I understood, you uh, deal with patients with medical condition. Do you deal with patients with, I would say, normal condition, someone who just wants to lose weight, for example? Yeah, so some of my colleagues would work with patients who just want to manage their weight. I work with people also who have a complicated relationship with food. So people who perhaps want to lose weight but have identified that there's maybe some disordered food behaviours in there, some disordered thoughts and feelings about food. So I'm not necessarily talking about eating disorders per se, anorexia, bulimia, but there may be some binge eating behaviours in there. There may be excessive restriction in there, but that's come from diet culture, we would call it. So it's come from them habitually dieting through their lives but continuing to struggle to manage their weight for example so that's where maybe our world we got like uh, as a personal trainer as a dietitian there is a, a thin line between uh, is that correct to say that um there is a lot of psychology behind nutrition and absolutely yeah absolutely and i think you know sometimes i feel like i'm working as a psychologist with my patients we don't talk a lot necessarily about you know, particularly these disordered eating patients we're not necessarily talking a lot about what they're eating we might be talking about why they're eating and what's happening for them and many of them are refer on to psychologists because it turns out that their issues perhaps need a little bit more in-depth scrutiny in terms of their psyche and what's going on for them and i think sometimes in your world and my world online in particular there's this idea that people are just not motivated enough or not disciplined enough when in reality what people need is to understand why these behaviors are difficult for them to adopt and maintain and what's causing that for them and how we can support them better rather than what can happen uh, and I think is the sort of social media narrative is you know they're lazy they're stupid they're greedy they've got these problems and they can't solve it and what's wrong with them so I think that's where our roles are to unpack understand and support in a more uh, nuanced way so that people can realize why it's difficult and also therefore adopt healthier behaviors for the right reasons yeah a lot of people i talk to uh complain about the overload of information online they get lost and as you say i mean the job your job is to unpack yeah that's yeah. definitely the, the right word to uh, all this and to make it clear to help people. Uh, uh, when it comes to training people, uh, the, the, the basic is to make someone understand like what an exercise is for and how to do it properly. And that's it, roughly. Mm -hmm. um, um, about you, uh, what makes you decide to become um, a dietitian? Yeah, I was a weird 15-year-old child that knew this is what I wanted to do. <laughs> so I'm very lucky in that sense. I was studying um, food tech, so like catering at GCSE, and we did some work on celiac disease and, and adapting meals for people who need a gluten-free diet. And my 
catering teacher was a nutritionist and she said oh I think you might be quite interested in this Sophie you should have a look into it and yeah funnily enough that's exactly what I did and I had a look online and I'd never met a dietitian before didn't know what dietitians or nutritionists really did in, in, in reality um, had a look online and found that if I was a dietitian I could work in hospitals and it would open more doors to me than if I was a nutritionist where I would sort of have to find my own career path and obviously I was you know 15 16 and I wanted things to be as straightforward and to have as many doors open to me as possible and I, I guess like I probably thought I would be I, I you know I'm really interested in exercise and done a lot of exercise through my life I guess I sort of thought I might be working with sports people or doing quite different stuff to what I do now but I've had I've been really lucky in my career I've done all sorts of different things I've I was in the NHS as most dietitians are for seven years I was then an academic so I was a lecturer and researcher for five years now I run my clinical practice so I've got a clinic uh, just over the way from where you're based in Covent Garden and we've got a team of 15 dietitians now all with their highly specialist areas the company's called City Dietitians I also do media work I've been lucky enough to do quite a lot of TV work and I design supplements and probiotics and all sorts of different things so if you told me at 15 I'd be doing all these things I never would have understood how I got here but I'm very lucky and I've really enjoyed my career so far. Yeah, I guess it's this kind of topic. It's endless. So when you say you were touching media and all this uh, area, it's uh, it makes sense. I mean, uh, there is not a single day. Uh, um, sometimes I go on social media and there's always something about food or something like that. Yeah. So always things to say. I um, how is the UK population compared to the French population, for example? Uh, do you think like? An English person have a, what's your expense? Like your, do you think people are, are aware of what is good or not in a, in the UK? Let's say. Yeah, I think there's huge variability in people's understanding of what healthy eating looks like. People like me and the government, etc., will be saying just eat less and move more, or five a day, or using these kind of uh, buzzwords, if you like, these kind of phrases, catchphrases to try and help people to understand what five a day or what eating healthily looks like when in reality my experience is that people need to be sat down have their diet gone through with them so they can understand what could be improved and where and how that can be done practically when we live busy lives and we're under pressure and, and all that kind of stuff I think the British population's understanding of healthy eating is hugely Uh, compromised by all of the health information that you mentioned before that's out there. So if you listen to certain super high profile podcasts, for example, they may have health experts and in inverted commas on there every week saying completely different things about what's going to kill you and what you should be doing and what you should be avoiding. And it creates this real anxiety. And of course, in this context, we're talking about people who perhaps have a higher level of education than the average person who are able to consume this information and want to apply it and have the the capacity within their lives to do so. And yet those people are really struggling. And then when we consider those from lower socioeconomic groups who are perhaps living in areas where access to fresh fruits and vegetables is impossible... There's, there's two problems there in terms of this over-information and this mixed information that people are receiving. At the kind of upper end of the socioeconomic scale, people are trying to do the right thing but don't know what the right thing to do is and maybe cutting out carbs and cutting out this and, and then going, well, I've heard this week that I'm supposed to be eating whole grains for my gut health. How does that fit into this low-carb life I'm supposed to be living? It's very confusing for people. And sometimes that does make people hit a sort of paralysis mm. where they think, well... I don't know what to do, so I'm going to do nothing. But that paralysis of decision-making certainly hits the lower socioeconomic groups more because where it's much harder to make healthier food choices, the message they're receiving is 
the experts don't even know what they're talking about. None of them can agree. So I might as well just do nothing and carry on eating processed food or whatever, because it's too difficult to change that in any case. So myself and my colleagues as dietitians, we're constantly trying to fight this misinformation and trying to maintain this sort of middle ground of the narrative of actually it's just about balance and, and what that looks like in practical sense. But it, we are fighting a huge tide, particularly, I would say, of like medical influencers, doctors, you know, professors, people like that who have a, a product and a, an opinion to drive home to people. They're very motivated to do so. They've got big platforms and that then really makes people feel anxious about what they should and shouldn't be eating and causes huge confusion. Yeah, I think it's important to understand maybe the, the trigger, like what makes you do something uh, in anything like uh, and food, uh, why are you going to eat fat food? Or, But um, in, in the world of personal training, there's a lot of, uh, it's similar to you, you have to fight against uh, a lot of platform expert uh, per se, and uh, they give some wrong advice sometimes. For example, the protein shake, it's not bad, it's not good, it's just unnecessary. I mean, and they, uh, they recommend a protein shake for somebody with uh, anorexia, you know, for example. So, I mean, it's kind of easy to, are you anorexic or not? I mean, it's, the answer is quite clear. If you're not, then you don't have to do that. And, uh, and uh, but people are confused, yeah, yeah. and uh, definitely. What sort of client are coming to you? So as I say, I primarily deal with patients who have complicated gut problems. So people who may have had bowel surgery, people who have inflammatory bowel disease like um, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, that sort of thing. I also look after patients who've got irritable bowel syndrome, which affects 20% of the population. And you may have seen in your practice where people say, oh, I'm trying to eat healthier, but my my gut doesn't like it and I'm struggling and I feel really bloated all the time. That kind of thing is the sort of thing that we can help with so that people can implement the things they want to without struggling. I saw a lady yesterday who has, when she goes running, she ends up ha having accidents. So she's having what we would call fecal incontinence. She's losing stool from her bottom without realizing it's happening, um, that kind of thing. And those are the sorts of problems that they're, some of them sound quite extreme, but it's very much my, <laughs> the things that I do all the time. I literally talk about poo for a living. Um, and then obviously I deal with the more softer side in terms of relationship with food with people. Within my team of dietitians, we've got a brilliant sports dietitian. We've got a dietitian who continually just focuses on irritable bowel syndrome as her main speciality. We've got dietitians who look after cardiac disease and diabetes and other, other areas of practice because... Nutrition is so broad, as we've mentioned, it touches every system in our body. And like you would have a respiratory doctor and a gynecologist and you wouldn't want to see a gynecologist for a lung problem. It's the same with dietitians. The, the best dietitians you can get your hands on are the ones who are real specialists in their areas of practice. And my team, I've been lucky enough to handpick them and decide who, wants, who I want to be on the team. And we are people who are academic experts in our areas or consultant level dietitians who've worked in the NHS for a long time and come into private practice to, to do it you know they'll do a little bit of work with me a few hours a week and it, I really value being able to give the public the, the best experts that we, they, we can find in the country. How many people do you think are intolerant to certain type of food but they don't know about it uh, roughly or in UK like uh, what is your proportion of this? Yeah, great question. I think it depends on how we kind of define intolerances. So if we think back to irritable bowel syndrome being 20, affecting 20% of the population, that means that maybe you ingest something like onion and garlic or apples or some quite common foods, maybe even wheat or dairy. You ingest those foods and you have gastrointestinal discomfort, maybe diarrhea, maybe constipation, maybe just bloating and wind, things that disrupt you enough to make you feel uncomfortable, let's say 
those would all be considered to be intolerances. So we would consider those to be that you have an intolerance and we would hope it would be temporary because that's largely driven by changes to your microbiome. So effects of general modern lifestyles on our microbiome and things like uh, gut infections, so gastroenteritis, things like antibiotic use, those sorts of things can really affect our gut microbiome and make us more sensitive to foods. Again, we hope those are temporary. Then we have all other types of intolerances where maybe things affect your skin or they affect give you brain fog and things like that. And those are really unmeasured. We don't know for sure how much that's affecting people. But I would say there are a significant proportion of the population who are being affected day to day by food intolerances and can't quite put their finger on what it is. One of the things that I will repeatedly say as many times as I can say it is intolerance tests that you can buy commercially are not clinically valid. Mm. So... There are companies and there are particularly big ones out there at the moment trying to tell you to send off a hair sample or a finger prick blood test or, you know, all sorts of different bits of your body that they want in the post from you to diagnose and in inverted commas food intolerances. None of them are clinically valid. There's no scientific evidence that they are useful and that's not something we use in our clinical practice because of that fact there's no scientific, you know, reason to do it. You have a, the, the thing they're measuring typically is an IgG reaction. You have an IgG reaction to everything that you eat. So what happens is when you get your report back to say what you're intolerant to, it will basically be everything that you eat. Mm. And so a best case scenario, people look at that piece of paper and throw it in the bin because they're like, well, I can't possibly cut out everything from my diet. Mm. Worst case scenario, and I see this all the time in my clinical practice, people cut out everything on that list and are barely living on anything and aren't going out for dinner with their friends, aren't eating with their family, are massively restricting their diet and becoming really sick because of it. We have patients who have been hospitalised because of these kinds of tests and things like that. So just while we're on the note of intolerances, please don't do any of those commercial intolerance tests. Please do just come and see a dietitian in clinic and we'll get you sorted. It's interesting because it's uh, it's so well detailed and explained and uh, in my world, All this is um, superficial in details, I mean, like we talk about that, but we never get, you know, to, we talk about just calories, intake, mm -hmm. things like that, and uh, which it's not really talking to me. That's what you say is more talking to you. I am, um, you say we're like a microbiote, okay? I think nowadays this is kind of a bit more on the table, like people, I saw more and more now social media about like, your bacteria inside your stomach are very important. We got bacteria and they are talking about the microbiota. Like when someone comes to see you, basically, what is the, what do you propose? What is um, the procedure like uh, with a dietitian? Yeah, so it's always different. So everyone's completely different and it depends. What One of the things that I like to do is trying to find the root cause of the problem. And I think that's really important because it helps people to understand more about their body and why this is happening. When you have gut dysfunction because of what I call a microbiome injury, you've got a problem with the, the bacteria in your colon. Um, understanding why that's happened is kind of the key to, to explaining it so you don't feel so worried about it. And the key things, the sort of main drivers of those kinds of problems are We mentioned it before, antibiotic use, particularly prolonged antibiotic use, gastroenteritis, so having a tummy bug. Sometimes it's when people have been traveling abroad, that kind of thing. It can be things like prolonged stress. So your gut bacteria really don't like stress. They essentially sort of evolve with you. So when you are stressed 
uh, for a prolonged period. Your gut bacteria change in populations to be more stress sensitive because Mm -hmm. they believe that you're existing in a very stressful environment. They're trying to help you. And so you end up with these very stressed gut bacteria that are much more reactive to foods that are around. They might give you more bloating, more gas, more problems with your digestion. They're less likely to be benefiting you in a significant way. They're more pro-inflammatory. They're triggering your immune system because they think there's a real threat around all the time. So prolonged stress has a really negative impact on our gut microbiome. Also, I see lots of patients who've been on restrictive diets, particularly during the pandemic, we had this big wave of keto diets, Mm -hmm. people cutting out all carbohydrates from their diet and then ending up with microbiome injuries and Mm -hmm. wondering why it's happened. And of course, if you cut out all whole grains and starches from your diet, that's basically what your gut bacteria want to live on and Mm -hmm. you've starved them. The same thing with, I see a fair number of sort of rehabilitated people who've gone through the bodybuilding type world and they've lived on sweet potato, broccoli, steak, rice, chicken for you know so many weeks and then they're wondering why their gut bacteria doesn't want to digest other things they've not eaten for ages again Mm. and the same you know i think just on that note i think with processed sort of protein products and protein bars and protein shakes people can end up in a situation where they're basically living off those Mm. thinking they're looking after their health when in reality it's ultra processed food that's not going to be beneficial to them if it becomes the mainstay of their diet so there's lots of reasons why people can end up with a microbiome injury and therefore gut symptoms. And the key to resolving that is to take care of your gut health. So gradually reintroducing the foods that you've restricted in very small amounts over an extended period of time to try and identify which ones are triggering you, but also to try and reintroduce those foods to your gut bacteria so that those populations that digest them can increase in numbers and start to be working properly again. And we also do lots of work with probiotics and getting the right blend of probiotics for people so that they can re sort of re-nourish their microbiome and get things back and again you know there are lots of commercial microbiome tests but Mm. for the vast majority of people interpreting those and applying them is really difficult and you know i've seen thousands of them and the results are pretty generic in terms of just eat more diverse plants and of course that would be the advice that we would give as well but eating more diverse plants can be really difficult when you've already got a microbiome injury so we need to take care of that gut bacteria first with probiotics maybe prebiotics feed it get it working better and then really gradually reintroduce foods to get things back But of course, we also have to help people with stress management and these other lifestyle factors. Maybe it's sleep, other things that negatively affect the gut bacteria and stop them from getting back into good health so they can work for you again. I, I can say something here, uh, valuable on my side. <laughs> it's um, you, you mentioned the stress, and uh, uh, it's a powerful oxidant, obviously, like uh, literally eating you from the inside. And so, the good thing with the training, for example, it does help to tame this stress, to regulate the stress, uh, the stress. Also, I think it's, uh, and I'm a trainer and I'm a dietitian, so I can say it like, uh, uh, I think it's completely true to say that the best way to lose weight is not to train, but to have a well-balanced uh, diet. That's correct? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the data is pretty clear that exercise contributes a small amount to our weight loss goals. And I think one of the mistakes, that, and you can speak to this more than I can, but I think one of the mistakes people make is thinking, well, I've got up this morning and I've done my workout, so now I'm going to sit at my desk all day and do nothing. And, you know, people should recognize that we burn more calories when we sleep than we do when we're exercising. We're burning more calories walking around than we would be sitting down, standing up better than sitting. I think that we live pretty sedentary lifestyles now and that massively contributes to struggles with weight management but yeah diet is really the cornerstone of weight management and one of the things that 
is important to say is that it's not useful just to give people a meal plan and say off you go and follow this because actually people's lives don't fit in with that and the reasons that people eat are way more complicated than you know most most food decisions are not made on the basis that it was healthy and it was available and it was there in front of me most food decisions are based on I'm tired and I need the quickest thing to get to feed me or I'm tired and I'm stressed and therefore I've got this massive craving and I'm in a supermarket and I've got this massive craving for chocolate, sweets, crisps, whatever the the sort of trigger might be. For some people it's there's loads of biscuits in the office and I find it really difficult to resist them or whatever it might be. So the food decisions we make are based on huge multifactorial things that are much less um, associated with, well, I don't know what to eat or I don't understand what's healthy and what's not healthy the vast majority of people understand they'd be better off eating some fruit than a cake but it's about why are we eating the things that we're eating and trying to unpack that with people which is potentially beyond the remit of most pts to be fair and i don't think you've got time for it but it's a it's an important part of the of helping people to to change their behaviors and therefore help them to manage their weight better i think uh, sometimes i spend a lot of time trying to understand what's in front of me like uh what is typical day to this person and also even if it's I'm not a, a parent or a relative. Like sometimes I randomly ask, like if these people like their own job, yeah. because it's um, as a trainer, it's not because you do 10 push-ups, you're gonna make <laughs> love your job. So it's, uh, I think, yeah, as you say, it's a multi aspect of uh, why people get unhealthy or yeah. of balance. Is it good to not have a breakfast or is it important to have a breakfast or the, it depends? Well, there's been a lot of debate about this in my world over the last few years. When I first started practicing, people said having breakfast is really important. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Then we had some research that suggested that actually um, if you don't like breakfast, then there's no point in trying to wedge in you know, 300 extra calories a day where you might not need them. So if you're not hungry at breakfast time, fine, don't have breakfast. Then more recently, we've had much more research into circadian rhythms, so our body clocks, and we've got more understanding now that calorie loading earlier in the day is better for us in terms of our metabolic health, our long-term health, than fasting all morning and then eating, you know, a thousand calories in the evening. What I would say in practice, what that means is actually listen to your body. If you're hungry in the morning, eat and enjoy your breakfast. Mm. If you're not feeling hungry in the morning, don't let yourself get so hungry that your lunch decision is is skewed. So if you end up not leaving, so say you haven't had breakfast and then you go out to buy lunch, but actually you're so hungry at that point and you walk into prep and you eat, you know, two baguettes and everything else you want it all. That's a problem. Having a snack when you first start feeling hungry, like some nuts or some yogurt or something like that is really helpful. But ultimately, trying to listen to your body, eat when you're hungry is a much better way of managing things than trying to force yourself to do something that doesn't fit for you. We also had a lot of um, controversy, let's say, about fasted exercise uh, a couple of years ago. And I would say, again, the same rule applies. If you're hungry before you exercise, eat something, definitely do it. If you find that not eating before exercise affects your exercise performance, mm. then that's going to compromise your, your health and your outcomes. So have something to eat before you exercise. We can't see from the data any specific benefits to fasted exercise for fat burning over and above You know, if you if you have no fuel and you can't exercise as well, you're not going to burn as many calories if that's your goal. Mm. Whereas if you're fueled and you take on a bit of energy beforehand and you have a great workout, you're much more likely to enjoy that workout, continue to do it and, and benefit from that in the long run. So, you know, in fact, we're not sure what the best thing is there for everybody, but we're all individual. I generally work out fasted. I feel great fasted. I generally don't eat anything in the morning, but that's me as an individual. And that's certainly not something I would 
push on other people if you're hungry in the morning eat in the morning i um even if it's it seems completely um unhealthy uh, i'm not a smoker but people will smoke sometimes and i say in, i try to see in between so i uh, i tend to say if you smoke please sit down and try to enjoy the moment uh, of this cigarette instead of uh, walking mm. in the street and uh, having a coffee or whatever because when you walk your your lunch are open so likely to catch more toxin is that, would you agree to to that kind of comment Yeah, and I think all of these, is if we think of smoking as well in the same category as perhaps eating foods that you know are not in keeping with your health goals at that time. So let's use a donut as a, as a classic example. If you're eating a donut and you're walking down the street, you're not really enjoying it. You're not being mindful with it. It's not really, you're not clocking those calories. Your body's not reading them in the same way as it would if you looked forward to a donut, treated yourself to a donut and had it sat down with friends maybe in a situation where you can really savor it. We call that sort of mindful eating. Mm -hmm. And if we're more mindful with what we're eating, our body reads that we've had that energy, it takes it in. Whereas if we do things mindlessly, same with smoking anything else, we're just doing it habitually and we're on the move and all that sort of stuff. We don't we don't appreciate it. It's not mindful. We're not savoring it. And therefore we're going to have less joy from it and more likely to want to do more and more of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Totally. I could uh, paraphrase that into the training when people lift, mm -hmm. but they don't really which muscle they are targeting. Mm -hmm. So they're just going through the motion without understanding. So it kind of removed the... I mean, again, the meaning of what you're doing. So another question uh, I eat a lot. It's uh, vegetarian or are you a fishy, meaty person? Um, I won't say yourself as a recommendation. Like uh, is the, I saw a documentary recently, which is was um, um, You Are What You Eat. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a, a study with twins, basically. And uh, so what? what's your view on that? Yeah. I mean, we've seen a huge rise of these documentaries on Netflix. You probably remember Game Changers. That was huge in fitness world. And then there's been What the Health and Cowspiracy and these kind of American style documentaries, which have no legality to be impartial. So they'll be funded, Game Changers, for example, funded by people who make artificial meat products. So they've got a huge financial benefit to making everyone go vegan, right? Temporarily or permanently. Uh, yeah, I think it's, there's a huge conflict of interest exactly. all the time in yeah. these kind of things. And I, uh, yeah, I mean... Yeah, just... yeah, totally. And there's just no impartiality to them. So w in the UK, we're used to documentary making where they have to be impartial and they have to examine things in a very impartial way. These documentaries don't have any commitment to that. They're not funded by, you know, companies who have any interest in impartiality. They're very much like... Sometimes they're like showcases for someone's opinion, essentially. So, uh, you know, people can learn from them. They might pick interesting things up for themselves. But I think we need to take it with, um, you know, a pinch of salt. Okay, that was interesting thing. Let me do a bit more research for myself. Let me see if there's another side to this story. I think there are great merits, well, that we know, there are huge merits to including many more plants in your diet and eating what I would call a plant-based diet. But that doesn't necessarily mean cutting out dairy, meat, eggs, fish, or any of those foods. I'm an omnivore, I eat everything, and I would say that um, I still have a plant-based diet. The vast majority of my plate will be plants, always. I'm obsessed with them. Um, but that doesn't mean that I eat more plants to the exclusion of other things. Mm. And I was vegetarian for a long time, and I think one of the things that 
we know to be true is that it's more difficult to meet your nutritional requirements on a vegan diet. And if people are really committed to it because ethically, morally, it's right for them, I would never try and suggest that somebody does anything different because living in a way that's the, you know, in not in congruity with your ethical beliefs is, is bad for your mental health and bad for your long-term health. So always we would support people who are following a vegan or vegetarian diet for moral ethical reasons. If they're following those kinds of diets because they've been led to believe it's better for their health, they've been misled and we can do some education around that and support people to make healthy changes that continue a plant-based diet, but in a way that's more likely to meet all of their nutritional needs without them having to really seriously plan and carefully think about things and potentially also being able to avoid supplementation, which is you know what most people want to be able to do. I'm not so sure that documentary like the one we mentioned help to reduce the stress because it adds stress to... Uh... Yeah, I, and I think that's really problematic because, again, we're talking to a, a group of people called, talking about a group of people who have potentially have the onus to make choices about their health and their food choice, right? And people are already stressed and anxious and then they watch these documentaries and then they're more stressed and anxious and worried about what they should and shouldn't be doing. And, you know, literally if you watched one of them next to another one, you'd get conflicting health information. And it's, again, going back to this story of overwhelm of information and what feels like really conflicting information. And that's where we have to just circle back and listen to our own bodies and think about what we need. All of us exist on a spectrum and some people would feel better, live better, be healthier on a much more vegetarian type diet. And others of us are more genetically programmed to require more red meat or more protein in our diets. For example, we all exist on a spectrum and it's about you as an individual. We can't say for everybody what's the right thing. And that's what makes it difficult because... When you have these documentaries, they can make these extreme claims and blanket recommendations and blanket information when in reality, yeah. people like me are saying, well, the research suggests that everyone's on a spectrum and that's a much less sexy sell and much harder to get people to engage with. It's a, it's a difficult and complicated world for sure. So if someone wants to contact you, what is your what platform do you use and where to find you? Yeah, so I mostly use Instagram. I'm at Sophie Dietitian on Instagram. The clinic email address or clinic address is uh, citydietitians.co.uk. You can have a look at the team on there. You can book online if you want to. Those are kind of my main platforms, I would say, for people to contact me. And feel free to you know, message me. I'm really open to that. Uh, thank you very much for your time. It was uh, very instructive. And uh, yeah, I could tell the difference uh, completely between a nutritionist and a dietitian. And uh, yeah, I could not recommend people enough to, to see a dietitian at some point in their life because it, it does help to, uh, to have a clear snapshot of who you are inside as well. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and it's good to talk to people about, you know, things that make you uncomfortable and the food is clearly uh, uh, taboo. Mm. So, but thank you for everything and um, have a lovely day. So that's Sophie and Julian there talking about all things dietary and gastrointestinal related. I'm kind of choosing my words carefully here to make sure I get them out correctly. Now, uh, Julian, it's a fascinating interview, actually. I really enjoyed listening to it. So tell me, what was your biggest takeaway from that interview? Quite a lot, actually. But sometimes I was asking Sophie, like, what is the best uh, way to lose weight or, you know, the best way to do, uh, to follow a diet? So I asked randomly, like, is it good to have a breakfast before training or not? But she said, listen to your gut. And I have to say, uh, I remember this sentence quite well. It stick to my mind. 
And um, and I try to, there's not a perfect diet. It's just a diet that you are able to follow. And it's just a balance, moderate uh, sort of uh, rhythm to have when it comes to food. And it was interesting to talk about that. And also the other thing I did with Tain is we did talk about those triggers that are going to set up good or bad habits. So there's a lot of psychology and multi-angle uh, aspect of nutrition. So on the back of that, do you follow healthy eating guidelines in your own diet uh, as well? And if so, which ones? Well, I would say that I kind of follow uh, the Mediterranean diet, which is fish, fiber, veggie, most of the time, olive oil. And also I sort of um, trying to eat in two time. So I don't, I'm not this kind of person who have a breakfast. I don't want to say that that's the best way it is. It worked for me, for my routine, my, with my work, how I train and all that. So I would say having not a breakfast is perfect for me. Again, like uh, Sophie will say, I don't feel like eating in the morning. So, you know, it's easy for me to follow that. And uh, yeah, I tend to eat twice a day and Mediterranean style. That's it. Yeah, I tend to follow uh, something of a Mediterranean diet, partly because I spend a lot of time in Italy. Uh, which is obviously one of the homes of the Mediterranean diet. I'm trying to eat some more rice at the moment, by the way. What a fascinating insight into my life, everybody. Uh, but it's so boring, I'm uh, struggling with it intensely. How do eating habits and the food that they eat affect your clients? Do, do those issues come up or do you simply train them? Well, the first thing is when you eat whatever, you know, like good or bad food, your body has to digest it, so your body is at work. So for example, if you eat like chicken and rice, let's say like that, it's not a bad thing. But if you eat it an hour or half an hour before training, when you're gonna start training, you're gonna feel tired because your body have one mission already, which is digesting this food. And you ask your body to do another task, which is training. So that's one point. Um, another point will be that eating the wrong type of food. If you eat sugar or all these kind of things, you're not gonna feed your, your muscle. So you can be tired quickly. Uh, it affects your sleep as well. And so if you don't sleep well, it's going to also affect your training. So, yeah, it's definitely your eating habit can affect uh, your training. And what's more important in terms of building a strong and fit body, which I imagine being a personal trainer is your area of expertise, is it a healthy diet or is it an effective exercise program with good technique? Well, these two things are complementary. Effective training will help you to burn two calories, but mainly to get stronger and to get toned. And it is very good to regulate your appetite, regulate your mood, and tend to help you to have a better, uh, well-balanced life. Now, of course, healthy diet, it's the hard one because a lot of people let their lifestyle, their work, uh, life in general, take over. And then the, they forgot about eating well-balanced. So what is the most important? It's hard to choose. As a sport person, I tend to say exercise, an effective exercise program, because that's something you want to do a bit every day. I'm not eating like a pig after that. But, you know, for my background, and a sportman. So exercising, moving is very important. But realistically and statistically, yeah, the LC diet is the most important 
if you don't like venturing on the gym floor. And with regard to the people when they come to you, uh, for you to train them, how often does the objective of losing weight feature in their approaches to you? Well, I think it's fairly 60, 70%, 70%, I think, like, uh, have this kind of uh, target, which is losing some uh, weight. For example, you know, uh, Sophie was, uh, I was asking Sophie what was the best way to lose weight and who is the best to help you between nutritionist, dietitian, and personal trainer. And she says that if your target is to lose a few pounds, a nutritionist or personal trainer should be enough. Yeah, losing weight, it's not in training harder or longer. It's basically removing bad diet habit. And, uh, and I'm personal, and I repeat, the best way to burn calorie is not to train. It's to have a better diet to remove bad habit. Training is very good to regulate appetite and plenty of other good things, but it's not the best to burn calorie. Indeed. And uh, finally, what would be your advice for anybody with unhealthy eating habits? And I imagine when I say anybody, I'm meaning most people, because I think most people uh, struggle with their culinary desires and with regard to what they eat. Well, that's a good question. It's a tough question to answer. I would say I was talking earlier on about triggers, those triggers that are going to lead you to create bad habits. Why are you eating a chocolate? Why are you eating two free beer instead of one, instead of none? And what uh, moment environment creates that? And um, it's, um, it's a lot of psychological uh, angle here. Yeah, talk to people. You can ask actually a dietitian, a nutritionist. You need to have a clear picture of what you eat over the week. And to start with, uh, you can use application like uh, MyFitnessPal to start to have an idea of how many calories you have to eat. But yeah, it's psychological, you know, you need to understand why you're eating such food, you know. Yes, part of the human condition, I guess. And having said that, I will continue to plow on with the rice. I think I'm under pressure from my partner to uh, eat more rice. And I'm struggling a little bit but I understand what you're saying. So, so that is Sophie Medlin and Julian talking about all things diet and gastrointestinal. And anybody who thinks that this is, uh, is a recorded show that it took me half an hour to say half of those words, you'd be absolutely correct. But we do want to thank Sophie for taking part. It was a wonderful interview, really fascinating. And if you want to find out more about her, you can uh, get in touch with her via her Instagram, her Twitter or her LinkedIn. Search for Sophie Dietitian or Sophie Medlin or indeed via citydietitians.co.uk and we will put all those contact details into the show notes. Our very own Alan Teresa has recently published its first novel, Adventures About to Begin is a family saga from the 1970s and is funny, dramatic and moving. Check it out on Amazon from all good bookshops in ebook and find out more on alanteresa.com. Every month on the podcast, as you lovely people who listen regularly will be aware, we pull out a couple of questions from the communications that come into us 
and we do our best to give helpful answers to their questions. It's Julian who gives the answers generally. I queue up the questions on the whole uh, and encourage him along. So, uh, first up is you, Julian, this month, I do believe. So what's the first question that um, we're going to answer? Oh, and before he gets into that, I always forget to say this bit, and I get Julian looking at me with his devil eyes when I do so. Uh, if you do want to drop us a line, feel free to get in touch through our website, twoguysonfitness.com, or through his website, julienbertero.com. And if you do want to get in touch with us, you can do so through our Instagram, our Facebook, our Twitter, and we love it when you get in touch. So over to you, Julian. What's the question this month to begin the questions on the show? The first question of the episode comes from Oliver in London, who has got in contact through our website to ask the following. Do you have a special routine to get back into an exercise lifestyle after Christmas? If so, what it is? Yes, uh, we struggled a little bit separately. I just want to make quite clear that Julian and I have a professional relationship. But we did struggle, didn't we, Julian? We were talking about this regularly all the way through January and even this month as well. Uh, bouncing back a little bit after Christmas because we had such a lovely time and Julian got a bit fat. Okay, Julian, so uh, what's your advice for people who want to get into the swing of things after Christmas? What's the tricks that you follow? Well, I think it's, it's first of all, if you develop a routine all over the year, I would say it's easy to, when you restart the year, to just surf off on uh, on this routine and to, to get back into it nicely. Now, if you don't have a routine, obviously, uh, initially, obviously it's hard to restart, but I would say like Christmas, it's uh, usually rich food. It means also alcohol. So uh, maybe something more cardio-ish, you know, like uh, don't get mad on the way because your body is likely to be full of toxin. And I think it's uh, maybe start with lighter, and shorter session you know to get back in track nicely you don't want to overdo things you need to allow your body to get back into a certain rhythm because normally you're gonna try to eat less to drink less and it's not the moment to train harder all at the same time so just shorter session uh, a little bit more intense maybe and cardioish Yes, uh, that's all very sensible and helpful advice, I think. Uh, I simply stopped eating all of the chocolate and cakes and all the rest of it uh, once Christmas and New Year was out of the way and just eased back into a more healthy diet, which, to be honest with you, I was quite happy to see after the, all the indulgence and flopping around over Christmas and New Year. Okay, so I hope that's helpful for you, Oliver, uh, as you continue your climb back to uh, a normal diet. And then next up, we have a question which I think is in front of me, if I'm not mistaken, and this is from... DD76 who has got in touch through our Facebook to ask this question for my podcast buddy sitting right here quote Julian did you put on weight over Christmas I'm sorry I shouldn't laugh and what have you done about it end of quote I kind of interjected a bit of a comedy comment in the middle of that didn't I because I've already touched upon the fact that Julian did come back put on a little bit of weight everybody Uh, when he returned uh, from France. So, um, did you put on weight, Julian, or did my eyes mislead me? And what have you done about it, Porky? Well, I mean, it's uh, always a tricky period because, like, obviously we change our beats. And especially Christmas, I like family time and I kind of let go a little bit. Uh, however, in France and in my family, it's a lot of fishy uh, oysters and all that. So it's not really much more calories than I usually eat in London. 
So uh, maybe a little bit to answer your question. And um, yeah, so let's say let's say I put on weight, okay. And what what do I do? Uh, well, I I tend to not overdo it. For example, the first week when I came back to work, I'm gonna train three times a week instead of five times like every day. And because you need your body your body to you need to allow your body to recover from uh, this new session your body will be likely to be under shock because you're going through a period you eat differently, you don't train, and you go back to eat again differently and train. So you need to let your body adapt to this new uh, change and the new beginning. So yeah, I tend to train uh, less uh, often, but regularly, but just less often, and I drop five kilo here or there on the bar, and do I do more reps like instead of doing eight reps I will move to 12 15 reps maybe marvelous and um, I hope that's helpful for you DD 76 you may have noticed there everybody there was a certain kind of like weight and getting back into condition uh, theme to those two questions and anybody who thinks that we chose those questions because they fitted with the interview with Sophie it would take a very suspicious mind to find a connection between those two sets of circumstances I assure you so there you go if you want to get in touch and ask your questions yourself feel free drop us a line we love it when people get in touch just send us your emails through the website or send us a message on our socials and we will get back in touch with you so there you go that's the end of another episode of the two guys on fitness podcast again we just want to thank Sophie Medlin for taking the time to sit down with Julian we loved hearing from you it was a wonderful conversation that you had and next month everybody we're going to be doing something a little bit different if everything goes to plan which is we're going to do a joint workout Julian is going to be working out with uh, a woman on the podcast who is herself a personal trainer we're just kind of pulling this episode together to be brutally honest with you so I won't say any more than that but um, if there aren't any issues that episode will also be on video as the recent episode with Julian doing a structured workout was on video uh, and it will be a little bit different to what we've done previously and we're quite looking forward to it aren't we Julian even though it's still coming together yes it will be interesting to see uh, two people having their own routine and to share this routine to each other particularly when one of those people is a woman it's a very male female exercise episode coming up if everything goes to plan okay so thank you for joining us everybody hope you've enjoyed the episode hope uh, Sophie had some advice uh, there which was useful for you and whatever you do between now and the next episode we say to you enjoy your workout